0: Hello. Oh, hey, that's loud. Woo. <laughs> all right, have a seat, everyone. Let's look at uh, God's Word together. I'm sure all of you went to bed last night thinking about Melchizedek and wondering about him. How many of you, uh, we're, all, we're all brothers and sisters and friends here. How many of you, if I asked you, to take out a piece of paper and to write down everything you know about Melchizedek, how many of you would pray that I wouldn't call on you to come up and give a report on it? Anybody? Does that apply to anybody? All right, so the rest of you then, you're experts on... Well, no, we want, uh, we want you to be wise and civilized here. So we're going we're gonna to think about this character that Adam looked at last week in Genesis 14... A uh, very mysterious uh, kind of guy, and uh, we want to think about him because he he is important uh, in the biblical story. So let's pray together, and then we'll look at Melchizedek from Hebrews. All right. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love, Father, that you have lavished upon us uh, in Jesus And we know that as we see Jesus, as we see Him in the Gospels, as we encounter Him uh, through Your Word, we know that in seeing Him, we see You. We see what You are like. We see a God who gives. We see a God who suffers. A God who loves and proves it. And so we thank You for that. Uh, We thank you that you wanted us to know who you were, so you gave us a book uh, and you gave uh, your son. We pray, Father, just as we think about your word today, that you would help us, help us to see in in this obscure, uh, seemingly obscure character in the Old Testament, help us to see something amazing about uh, the ministry of Jesus. And how it impacts us. And we pray, Father, that we would be encouraged. That we would be challenged. And that that we would leave this place a little different. Having encountered you and understood a little bit more about who you are. So, Father, we need your help. I need your help. And we pray that your spirit would work uh, in our hearts today. Would you take a few moments, just quietly, don't say anything out loud, but just pray that the Lord would speak to your heart today. And then if you would take a few moments and just, again, silently, just pray for me, pray that God would speak through me, that we might be encouraged together. Father, again, we come humbly to you, uh, we come needy, we need you to work uh, in our hearts. And so we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I had an interesting experience this past summer. We went to, when we were back in Texas, we, uh, my family got to go to a, uh, a baseball game, a professional baseball game. And uh, we got to sit in one of the like corporate suites, right? So, so we turned up at the thing and uh, we, we said the name of the, the man that, that purchased the tickets for us. And we were, we were let kind of behind the veil, right? There's the hoi polloi, the people, the masses are all over there. And we got to go over here into the nice part. And so we walked into this suite. And there was food everywhere and it was all free. Uh, I, I think that I, I didn't eat that day in anticipation of all the food that was going to be there and be free. And so immediately, you know, I just start eating, you know, I've, um, hot dogs and popcorn and, and nachos and, you know, all these other, all these things. Pizza, everything you could imagine is in this thing. And we got, there's great seats It was just an incredible experience, and it was all because uh, of this man who was kind enough to give us tickets that gave us access into this delightful place. Now contrast that to another experience that I had with another friend years ago at another sporting event, and we turned up and we showed our tickets, and if the, the, the sports pitch is over here We were ushered over here and up and we started walking up these stairs in this uh, stadium, in this arena. We started walking up the stairs and we kept going and we kept going and we kept going and we got to where we couldn't go any further and those were our seats. It seemed like miles away. From where everything was. The the players were like little ants, you know, on the pitch below us. Our seats were so bad. And why were they bad? They were bad because when we showed our tickets, guess what? This was the only access we had, was these horrible seats. Now contrast those two experiences. And you you think about, okay, what was the difference in those experiences? Well, it was in the one, we had a good mediator. We had someone who had given us good tickets. that gave us good access. And in the other, we had a pretty bad mediator. We didn't have good access. And that's what we see uh, as we look at the, the, the scriptures. We see that we need a mediator. We need someone who will mediate between us and God. But here's the thing we need a good mediator. We need a mediator that's able to, a, a priest that is able to take us directly into the presence of God. Not just to the, the edge of the mountain, like in the Old Testament, not just to the, the veil, like in the tabernacle and the temple, but we need someone who's able to give us perfect access. To God. And that's what we see in the ministry of Jesus, isn't it? We don't want to get this wrong because our access, our level of access is determined by the quality of our mediator, by the quality of our priest. And so we need the right priest in order to have the kind of access that we need To our heavenly father. We don't want to get it wrong on this one. Right? And so as we think about the the book of Hebrews. The argument of the book of Hebrews. And this is where we're going to think today. The argument of the book of Hebrews is that we can't do better than Jesus. That Jesus is the best. And we can't do better. And so we better cling tightly To him. Now, to make that point, that's where the author of Hebrews is going. And to make that point, one of the ways he argues that is by going back into the Old Testament all the way to Genesis 14 to this character called Melchizedek. So, Adam touched on Melchizedek last week from Genesis 14. We only see him in three places. In the scriptures, but he is very important. We saw him again last week in Genesis 14, in two verses of Genesis 14, where he meets uh, Abraham after Abraham returns from this battle in which he's been victorious. We see him in Psalm 110, verse four, where he is, where, where his ministry is compared to the eternal ministry of the Messiah. And then we see him in Hebrews chapter 5 to chapter 7. And there we see him, uh, the author of of Hebrews there, uh, is going to assert that he is a type or he is a pointer to Jesus. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do, just before we get into it, what the the author of Hebrews is going to do is he is going to use Psalm 110 as a lens through which to interpret what happens in Genesis 14 in order to relate it to the ministry of Jesus. So he's going to use Psalm 110 as a lens to think about what happened in Genesis 14 in order to relate it to Jesus. And what he's going to do is he's going to show that Melchizedek is a shadow that the scriptures use to highlight the importance of the priestly ministry of Jesus. And we'll unpack that as we go. So Hebrews wants us to, uh, to grab hold of and to embrace Jesus as the only way to God. As the, 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 the only mediator who can get us directly into God's presence. And Melchizedek is going to serve to point us to Jesus, as the author of Hebrews will use his story. So what I want to do today is to kind of connect the dots uh, as we think about how Melchizedek is like Jesus, and then even more than that, why it matters. Because listen, here's the thing. It doesn't just matter out there somewhere. It doesn't just matter theoretically or in some seminary class. It matters for you personally that Melchizedek is like Jesus because of what the author of Hebrews will lead us to. It's critical to our access, our eternal access to the Father. So circling back from chapter 5 in the book of Hebrews, he's going to make the argument here that Melchizedek is like Jesus. Melchizedek's importance lies first in the fact that he pictures Jesus. So if you have your Bible, look with me at Hebrews chapter 7. And just look down at verse, uh, at verses 1 and 2 and 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now underline this phrase. But resembling the Son of God... He continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek's importance lies in the fact that he pictures Jesus. That he resembles the Son of God in some way. And here's what he says in those first three verses. He resembles uh, Jesus in his name So the author of Hebrews notes that he is the king of righteousness. Remember, Adam thought about that last week. Melech, Zedek means king of righteousness. Uh, We see in the prophets uh, that the Messiah is going to be the Lord, our righteousness. He is, Melchizedek is, the author tells us, the king of peace. Because he is the the king of Jerusalem, of Salem, that is Shalom. Uh, So he is the king of peace. And remember in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, there is the promise of the Messiah who will be the prince of, the prince of peace, right? So we see in the Messiah uh, this, uh, this idea of, of peace, of shalom. In Ephesians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is our peace. So there is, a, there is a, a resemblance in the name of Melchizedek and the name of Jesus. He also resembles Jesus in his function, in the way that he functions. Most fundamentally, Melchizedek is, we are told, a priest of God Most High. Now, we see that Melchizedek has this unique role of being both a king And a priest. So a king and a priest united in one person. Now if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that that's not possible in the Old Testament. Uh, It's not possible for one man to be both a king and a priest. Because in the Old Testament, what tribe do kings come from? Judah. And what tribe do priests come from? Levi. Levi. So we've got a problem. So if the Messiah is going to be a priest and a king, how are we going to make that work? We have a bit of a conundrum because remember in Psalm 110, here's what we're told. This is a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy of what the Messiah is going to be like. And here's what the author says in Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So how can the Messiah be both a king and a priest? Well, Psalm 110 says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who was also a king and a priest. So these, these dual offices present us with a bit of a conundrum when we see that the Messiah is going to be a king and a priest. He's also going to be a prophet like Moses. So in the Messiah, we're going to see prophet, priest, and king united in one person. How do we do that? Well, the Messiah is not going to be a priest like one of the Old Testament Levitical priests. He's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. in the the line of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. If you skip ahead to verse 13 and 14 uh, of chapter 7, For the one to whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, So again, how do we get a Messiah who is both a king and a priest? Well, Psalm 110 says he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Genesis 14 told us that Melchizedek was king and priest in one man, right? Uh, He also, we're told here uh, also in verses 1 to 3 that he is without genealogy. Now, genealogy was critical for priests, if you wanted to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to establish that you were from the line of Levi. Genealogy mattered. In fact, when in Nehemiah 7, when former priests are returning from exile back into the land, uh, in Nehemiah 7, there are some that are excluded from priestly ministry because they cannot prove their genealogy. So genealogy mattered in terms of uh, of the Old Testament priesthood. But Melchizedek and Christ are a little different. They are without genealogy. If you go back to chapter 5 of Hebrews in verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He was appointed a high priest by God. And again, he's going to quote Psalm 110. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Uh, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is not a priest because of his genealogy. Melchizedek was not a priest because of his genealogy. They were priests because they were appointed by God. So again, Melchizedek, Jesus, there's a similarity in the way that they function. They function as king priests and their ministries. Uh, and they don't lose their priesthood through uh, death. In Hebrews 7 verse 15 it says, this becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent or genealogy but by the power of an indestructible life. He never loses his priesthood through death, And that leads us to a third way that Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Uh, and that is, he resembles Jesus in his nature. Because in verse 3, it says that Melchizedek is without father or mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? That Melchizedek somehow resembles the Son of God in his eternal nature. Well, let's think about this for a minute. Melchizedek, if you remember back to Genesis 14 and the story that Adam did last week, Melchizedek just kind of appears out of nowhere. He, he just kind of turns up uh, in, the, in the narrative. Uh, he's not really introduced, boom, he's just there. And then after the author is finished with Melchizedek, he just disappears. He's just kind of gone and he's forgotten uh, about in the record. So the main clause here of verses 1 to 3 is this idea of resembling, or sorry, is, the, is the, the, that last phrase that he continues a priest forever. So what does that mean? Well, the author of Hebrews doesn't believe that Melchizedek is, uh, is literally eternal. Uh, he is, from Genesis 14, he's part of a priestly line. Uh, he's part of a, a line of, of priests that are appointed. So he doesn't believe that he's literally eternal. But again, reading through the lens of Psalm 110 he sees the lack of detail about Melchizedek's life as pointing to something, as representing something. And so in Genesis 14, Melchizedek appears to be eternal. He uh, uh, appears uh, to be eternal because he is going to point to someone who is eternal later. So again, reading Psalm 110 that the Messiah will come and be a priest forever, he reads back into Genesis 14, literally how Melchizedek appears out of nowhere and then disappears as a pointer to what the ministry of the Messiah will look like as one who lives forever. So he says again, Melchizedek was made like the Son of God or he resembles the Son of God. So Melchizedek's, literarily speaking, his forever ministry points to something deeper for the author of Hebrews. It points to the eternal priesthood, the forever priesthood of Jesus. So again, what the author of Hebrews is arguing is that the silence of Genesis 14 about Melchizedek is intentional It's not intended to say that Melchizedek was literally eternal, but it's being used by the author, by the divine author, to point to the eternal nature of Jesus, who is a priest like Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, we might say, becomes a type or a shadow of which Jesus is the fulfillment So the silence that we see about Melchizedek's origin or his death is intended as a shadow. That by the time we get to the ministry of Jesus, we see, okay, this was pointing us to something else. Jesus' eternal, literal eternal priesthood is like the the figurative eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. That we see. So, now, I want to just make a statement here uh, about hermeneutics, about the way that we study the Bible. Uh, this isn't allegory. So like in an allegory, we take all the characters and we assign them different functions. and even you know, inanimate objects, we assign them different functions and we give them meaning. That's not what's going on here. Uh, we believe that meaning resides with the author and not with the interpreter. So we seek to, to arrive at the meaning of the scripture as the author intended us to understand it. So the author of Hebrews is not allegorically interpreting. What is going on? uh, The way we might do, you know, in in the Chronicles of Narnia or something like that. Uh, What we see here is the author making an inspired and preordained connection. So the divine author, the Holy Spirit, is leading the author of Hebrews to see this connection between Melchizedek... And Jesus and Melchizedek's priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. Alright? So this is a this is a preordained divine connection that the the, the 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 Spirit of God is making through the author of Hebrews. That the priesthood of Melchizedek is like the priesthood of Jesus. So Melchizedek, we we see is like Christ. And he's going to take this one step further and argue that like Christ, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Abraham. And the corollary to that, the, 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 the implication of that is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Abraham. So Look at verse 4 to 10 here. "...see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So Melchizedek is like Christ, and like Christ is greater than Abraham. And this greatness, the author tells us, is based on three things. First, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. And his argument is that it's the lesser who tithes to the greater. So if Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Tithes go up. Uh, They don't go down right? And so if Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, then it means that he is greater than Abraham. Again, Abraham, the great patriarch, right? The one to whom all the promises were given recognized the greatness of Melchizedek and offered him a tenth of the spoils. And that's what is, is stressed here. And he extends that because it's often asserted that ancestors uh, are are in, or sorry, that, that descendants are somehow present in their ancestors. And so he extends that and he says, Levi, through whom the Old Testament priests came, was still in the, the loins of Abraham when he gave tithes. So if Abraham tithes to the greater, Melchizedek, Then by extension, Levi, from whom all the priests come, is also recognizing the superiority of Melchizedek. The second thing the author points to in verses 6 and 7 is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And the author of Hebrews suggests that it is the, the lesser that is blessed by the greater. And so because Melchizedek blesses Abraham, that's a sign that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then the third thing that separates Melchizedek is, again, this idea that he lives on forever. He continues a priest forever in verse 3. In verse 6, this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes. Uh, In in verse 8, in in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives so Melchizedek is presented here as being greater than Abraham because he receives tithes from Abraham, because he blesses Abraham, and because he lives on forever. Again, in this figurative sense, in the record, we don't see his beginning. We don't see his end. And so he is greater than Abraham. And so again, you know, we, we can't go to another text and see that Melchizedek, loses his priestly office by dying. Uh, in the, the narrative, in the story, Melchizedek appears to live forever, and so his priesthood appears to extend forever. So this is a really strong contrast that the author of Hebrews is making here. The Levites and the Levitical priests, they all died, didn't they? They died and their ministries ended when they died. Uh, They're mortal men. But again, Melchizedek seemingly did not. And we know that Christ is alive forevermore. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus records, uh, I think it's 83 uh, high priests uh, from the time of Aaron uh, to the, the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. All of those priests lived and died. And when they died, their priestly ministry ended, right? But in the text, in the narrative of the story, Melchizedek, we don't see that. We're not privy to the information about his mortality. And so it appears to us in the text that his priesthood extends forever. And so in the divine flow of Scripture, the connection is made that just like that, Jesus' priestly ministry doesn't end, because he is eternal. So that's how Melchizedek is like Christ. He resembles him in his ministry. He resembles him in his superiority to Abraham and the priests that would come from Abraham. Now, here's why that matters. Here's why that matters. Because if Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the one that comes from Abraham, and if Jesus... Is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, then Jesus' ministry as a mediating priest is greater than the Old Testament priests that came before him. That's the point that the author of Hebrews wants to make. It is that in Jesus, we see a paradigm shift when it comes to priestly ministry and priestly work. We see a a shift. So Jesus takes the priesthood to a whole new level. He's a priest like no other. Uh, He is a better priest. He is, in fact, the best mediator that we can have. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 28 as he develops this argument. The priestly ministry of Jesus ushers in a better hope. Just look at verses 11 Uh, through 19. The author is going to argue that perfection wasn't available in the Old Testament priestly system. So we needed a new priest. We needed a better mediator. And that's what Jesus offers us. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside in verse 18. The law made nothing perfect in verse 19. But a better hope is introduced through this ultimate priest Jesus. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See, we needed a better mediator than was offered in the Old Testament. We needed someone who could, by cleansing our very conscience, get us all the way to God. Again, not to the edge of the mountain, not just to the veil, but all the way into God's presence. As a result of the cleansing that he offered. And that was Jesus. Uh, In Jesus, God has sworn that Jesus is able to accomplish his priestly work. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. In the Old Testament, you were a priest because you were from a certain line. Because you were from a certain family. But Jesus is a priest on the basis of God's oath. But this one, verse 21, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever. And then the amazing thing in verse 22, this makes Jesus, this oath that God gives, this makes Jesus the guarantor Of a better covenant. So God has sworn that Jesus is able to accomplish his priestly work. We can't do better than Jesus. He takes us into the the suite, and He's the only one who can. He takes us behind the veil into the very presence of God. He's not just a mediator uh, who, who connects two parties, He is a guarantor the author says. What does a guarantor do? A guarantor is a a co-signer who stands behind and takes responsibility for doing something. And so the author of Hebrews says Jesus is the guarantor uh, of this promise of, uh, of of a new covenant. He's the one that makes it happen. He's the one that takes responsibility for it. And finally, again, remember back to the main clause of verse 3. He continues a priest forever. Melchizedek is a priest who abides forever. That was true in a figurative sense, but it's not figurative for Jesus. It's literal. He continues forever as a priest. Look at verses 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Consequently, and this is the main point he wants you to see here, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the crux of what we call the high priestly ministry of Jesus. That he is always able, he is always able to mediate between the people and God because he always lives. His ministry is forever. As he sits in God's very presence, he literally abides forever at the right hand of God. We don't have to question our access to God. Because our access to God is dependent upon another it's dependent on one who is eternally at the right hand of God. Uh, it's dependent on one who is a forever priest in God's presence on our behalf. If our mediator is a forever priest, then we have forever access to God. And the author sums this up in verses 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. In other words, this is what we needed. A priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is what we needed. We needed such a high priest. We needed a priest who has no need, verse 27, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We need a forever priest. We need someone to stand before God on our behalf who will cleanse our conscience that we might have forever access to God. And the author of Hebrews says that's what we have in Jesus. That's what we have. A priest forever like Melchizedek. So do you see why Melchizedek is here? Because he points us to Jesus. In his priestly ministry, as it appears in the narrative points us to the kind of ministry that Jesus, our priest, is going to have. An eternal priesthood. He takes the priesthood to a whole new level. He is able to guarantee our access to the Father through his sacrifice. So what do we do? How how do we respond to such a high priest? The author of Hebrews says that we are to rest And rejoice in the eternal access that our eternal priest has provided for us. So we we have no fear. In other words, we can rest in the priestly ministry of Jesus. That his sacrifice is always enough for us. His sacrifice is always sufficient for us. And we know that, the author of Hebrews says, because he is always there, eternally enthroned at the Father's side. And if he is accepted, then we are accepted. Because through faith we are in him. And this is so important. We shouldn't think about the, the priestly ministry of Jesus. We shouldn't think about the intercession that Jesus makes before the Father uh, as a kind of, ah, oh, come on, Father. You know, I know that there are a bunch of Egypts, right? But uh, yeah, come on. Just, we shouldn't think about his intercession as trying to convince an unloving father to make an exception in our case. That's not what the intercession of Jesus looks like. The Father loves us because he loves his Son. And so the very presence of the Son with the Father is his intercession. The Father continually accepts the sacrifice of the Son. And so he continually accepts those that are in him through faith. So Jesus isn't trying to convince an unwilling father to keep loving his people. No, the father is eternally satisfied in the sacrifice of the son. And if we have trusted in that sacrifice, then he is eternally satisfied and he loves us. And so we rejoice. For those that have trusted in Christ, Our salvation is as secure as the sacrifice on which it is based. That is, if if God will always accept Jesus, then he will always accept those who have trusted in him. The guarantor has come through for his people, he's done for us all that was necessary. We can rest, we can rejoice. And let me just offer you one more R word. See, because you might be here today and you might be thinking, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've messed up. You don't know how I've blown it. You don't know my my story. Surely this doesn't apply to me. Surely I can't rest and rejoice in Jesus' sacrifice for me. I want you to hear me. There is nothing that you can do for which Jesus has not paid. There is nothing that you can do for which Jesus has not paid. In him, our access to the Father is unfettered and free, listen, even if we need to access him to confess our sin. He loves us because He will always love His Son. And as we approach the Father through faith in the Son, we can know that He will accept us. So we can rest. We can rejoice. and Listen, if you are far from Him, you can repent and you can return. And He will welcome you. Through Christ. He will welcome you through Christ. What you'll find in Jesus is not condemnation, but restoration with the Father. And look, if you've never trusted Christ, the same holds true for you. You can turn and you can trust Him today by placing all of your hope for new life in Him And he will forgive you and he will give you new life. Can we still base our lives on the sacrifice of this Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago? I mean, what can stand the test of 2,000 years, right? The answer is yes, we can. Because his priesthood is eternal. Our hope for the future is eternal. And we can trust in him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus, whose sacrifice is forever. And we pray, Father, that we would continue to trust. That we would rest That we would rejoice. And Father, that we would repent and return. And we believe, Father, that if we repent and return, that we will not be turned away through Christ. But that we will receive restoration. So, Father, for those that, that are far from you. For those that are feeling conviction for sin, I pray, Father, that you would draw them to repent on the basis of Jesus. And Father, help us all to rest and rejoice. It's in his name we pray.